friends, and welcome back to another episode of Go Ask Alice, the show where we jump down random internet rabbit holes and bring you wonderful factoids from our adventures in Wiki Wonderland. I'm Drew, and I think loud noises are funny. With me is... <laughs> oh my god, I can't wait. Um, <laughs> I'm Lindsay, and I'm staring at a three-headed baby doll. <laughs> uh, I'm Sarah, and I'm trying to give up Pepsi Max. <laughs> Sarah, it's like 10 in the morning, your time. (laughs) No, I mean, just generally, I'm trying to cut back on my Pepsi Max soda stream consumption. Um, Oh my, okay. I imagined you drinking it right now. uh, I would be if I had some in the house. (laughs) Currently, I'm drinking a soda stream mango and orange, which is very lovely. That's very breakfast of you. Thank you. (laughs) That is very breakfast. (laughs) I am the pinnacle of health. (laughs) (laughs) This is the show where we all start out on the same Wikipedia page and we each, the three of us, click around on random hyperlinks and whatever catches our fancy until we have found something that we deem metrically interesting, i.e. we cannot stop reading it for two or more paragraphs. If that's the case, we are beholden to share it with each other and with you. This week, we started on black holes. But before we dive into that, um, I think that we really need to take a pit stop in the apology corner. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah, just going to stamp my card real quick. Oh. My frequent visiting card. Uh, so, um, so far, it's only been Lindsay in the apology corner. <laughs> we can call it Lindsay's apology corner. <laughs> if any of you ever end up there, I'll I'll just interview you. Like, why do you think you're sorry? <laughs> All right. So shall we put the apology music what? on? Yes, absolutely. I am. Okay. I'm really sorry. That in the last episode, I didn't read the entire article and I had no idea that I was saying a slur over and over and over and over again. And over. I <laughs> and I actually feel very bad about it. And I feel so bad about it that I haven't been able to stop telling people <laughs> doing this. I'm very I'm honestly very sorry. Thank you for your time. We forgive you. We forgive you. You're, Wait, you're forgiven. Your sins you are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Okay, but no, if I offended any Germans or those of German heritage or descent, I am genuinely very sorry. Um, on that cheery note, where did everyone end up? Oh, no, no, no. Question of the week. Alrighty, so this week's question of the week is, what is the weirdest fandom that you've stumbled across? And I think this was a Lindsay special, so Lindsay, you can go first. (laughs) (laughs) This was fresh on my mind because I'm going to say, I mean, it was the weirdest, but also most pleasant. Um, It's not like super cringy, but I discovered that, I don't know if you guys remember Lisa Frank. Um, the, like school supplies that are like really colorful and rainbow yeah, uh, kind of stuff. Yeah. So I'm a huge Lisa Frank fan because I love to put Lisa Frank stickers when I'm grading uh, students' assignments. Lisa Frank herself, however, is not a fun person. Um, I don't oh. want to brag, but I've been involved in the fire Festival of Makeup involving Lisa Frank and Kickstarter. Um, but I recently came into 
for free a bunch of brand new Lisa Frank backpacks from the 90s and I resold them for over $200 put together. Whoa. Um, and it turns out, so like I sold Lisa Frank binders and folders and backpacks and wallets and I had stumbled upon a Lisa Frank fandom where they were all trying to outbid each other and it's just a bunch of like you know people our age trying to like relive their nostalgia with like tons of disposable income it's i hope it's disposable income oh, yeah. um <laughs> please please be disposable income <laughs> don't make your children starve for your lisa frank <laughs> habit <laughs> oh we're but millennials we can't afford children but they but like you know a bunch of these people like at least two people now are like like i was joking with them like haha i feel like i found a lisa frank cult and they were like i love that (gasps) (laughs) and they'll just randomly text me like how's your week going and i'm like oh my god good thanks that's lovely (laughs) a bunch of emojis Yeah, so I didn't know that existed, but, you know, they sent me, like, videos of their collections and stuff, and it's pretty awesome. That's really cool. Do you, like, (laughs) go on the hunt in the op shops for, or uh, charity shops, I forget that op shop is very Australian slang, in, like, (laughs) secondhand stores for, for the Lisa Frank goodies? I am now. Yeah, I am now. And I guess um, now that I'm broadcasting this information, everybody should keep their eyes peeled because there's a very real market for Lisa Frank resale. Oh, I can't wait to go op shopping with you one day. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you, Sarah? I'm interested. Okay, so I was thinking about this and I'm going to talk about my favorite fandom of like the last week that I've found. And it's a TikTok thing. And you've probably seen it, but it is the pug that either has bones or no bones. Have you seen these videos? I just saw a meme about this. Yes. Oh, my God. It's the most pure thing. So it's this man and his 13-year-old pug. And the pug is a big floppy boy. And he tries to pick it up and get it to sit up in the morning to see if it wants to go for a walk. And most of the time it just flops back flops back down but it's like it's like astrology you can predict your day based on if the pug has bones or no bones <laughs> oh my god i literally just saw a meme that was like the weather app but it was like bones or no bones <laughs> yeah. i was like is this an add-on like what is this yeah i love it it is the most pure thing and now because i love it so much all of my tiktok is just people making memes and jokes about bones or no bones um (laughs) and i've never identified so hard with a group of people loving the same thing um yeah and oh and the pug amazing the pug's name is noodles Oh, that's adorable. He's a Which very could sweet have bones boy. or no bones? Bones or no bones? I love him. You want boneless noodles? Yeah. What about you, Drew? <sighs> what about you, Drew? So, um, this is not only a fandom that I've encountered, but I was a very big part of. Oh, no. Um, so. God, I can't believe I'm saying this online. Uh, I was a brony for a very long time. What's a what's a brony? A brony oh my God, she's is a make you is a male it. is a male fan of My Little Pony. 
No, it's not. <laughs> Who was your favorite pony and why? A rarity. Come on. She she is oh my god, this is What she got that up. we don't got. What she got that you don't got? Um What makes her so rare? Well, she's got diamonds as a cutie mark. I'm sad that I remember this. Holy <laughs> shit, you are hitting me. <laughs> Wait, but is I, a cutie mark like a tramp stamp for ponies? <laughs> It's not a tramp stamp. It's your, it's your, you, what you're good at. Oh, so she's good at diamonds? Yes. Well, she's good at accessorizing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is great. I'm this learning. Is, yeah. This is amazing. So, this show is about learning. I've, this show is about learning. I've well, never watched was, My Little Pony. So I this was is very, great. very into it for a very long time. Not a very long time. I'd say about two years. That's a long time. How long now. ago oh was this, Drew? Jesus. Wait, um, so why aren't you anymore? Because I grew up. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know. I mean, like, you seem the same to me now that you were, like, forever ago. But that's because I feel like when you're, when you're still, fr- it's like glacial changes when you, like, yes. I don't know. Um, so this was before <laughs> college. So this is very much before college. Um, but so then you didn't know me during that brony phase. But, um, yeah, I was, it was the weirdest fandom I've ever been a part of because I read books about Fallout where they involved ponies and Fallout Equestria. Good. (laughs) Say to that. That's super good. Uh, I read all, what was it? 160 chapters of that. It was super good. Oh my God. It's like a Fallout with My Little Pony? Yes, absolutely. Fallout Equestria. Wait, so it's like, is it just like post-apocalyptic My Little Pony? Yes. Wait, that sounds awesome. <laughs> that does sound really badass. Yeah, Fallout Equestria is a good time. It's a it's really like, good time. It's like Mad Max Lisa Frank. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's what it is. But yeah, I was a, I was a brony for, for a while. And then... How um, old were I you have... when you were a brony, Drew? Was this like a teenage years early 20s no shame no no this was this was like 17 18 yeah and was it like a group of so friends? old enough to vote old enough to vote and i was a brony that's <laughs> that's fucking depressing that's the type of person i want making decisions about yeah exactly <laughs> well i'd take it over many other people <laughs> i don't think it's that bad because I really, I really think this is related to the Lisa Frank fandom, which is like people trying to relive a certain like childhood and nostalgia. Exactly. Yeah. Like a childhood innocence. I get that so much. I mean, that's why I doom scroll online all the time is because I'm just looking to immerse myself in some. (laughs) Yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing. Like, you know, you're just. I do it every day. You're just looking to exactly you know trying to enter some kind of world where the real world you, you take a break from it for a while i don't know i i do get it i i mean drew you and i were texting today about the marvelous misadventures of flapjack and wanting yes. to do like you know matching costume like <laughs> i mean yes. halloween is just like a day that everyone can cosplay and no one says anything about yeah, it exactly like, you know <laughs> no one gets weird side eye looks like what the fuck is that <laughs> Oh, so I think I really do. I think you're being hard on yourself because I really do think that it 
it's very relatable. It's just it just so happens that a lot of people in that fandom I think are cringy, but Oh yeah. But you're not oh, yeah. cringy. Yeah, you're not cringy. <laughs> I, the two of us. I am so glad that I'm not cringy to you too, because that means a lot. You know who is cringy? <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I'm gonna make enemies right now. Super Hulock fans. I venture to say I have no idea what that is. Yeah, I don't know <gasps> what that is. Were none of you on Tumblr in like 2011? No, I never. I no. never got into Tumblr. Jesus. Okay, it was a cross, and then we'll actually get into the show. But it was a cross section of fans that were really, really, really diehard, like foaming at the mouth for <laughs> Doctor Who, Supernatural, and Sherlock. Ah, that's very specific. Yes, Very but those fans would come for your jugular. White British man enthusiasm. <laughs> it's like the second coming of the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, no, I know exactly what fandom you're talking about, and it's now it's now hit me. Yeah, those were intolerable. And I will say that I never watched any of those shows because of that like fandom. That's, yeah, that's no, that makes never sense. Never gonna be worth it. Well, anyway, yeah, now that we've sense. well, that was that was a good that... black hole to go down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of black holes, so yeah, we started on black hole. Where did we end up, Drew? I ended up as the mole as a unit. Oh, I always I wondered love, why. I love a good mole unit. Brilliant, Lindsay. Where did you end up? I I off-roaded a bit, as did Drew, because I felt that Wikipedia did not... Wikipedia snagged me and reeled me in, but then gave me nothing to subside on. So I ended up off-roading, and I owe all of this to a person named Wayne Wheeler, who wrote a huge article about the history of the foghorn. <gasps> I love foghorns. That is great. I'm very excited. Yeah, where, <laughs> what about you, Sarah? Where are you? So I went on a bit of a, a, a definite rabbit hole because um, black hole, you know, it lends itself to sciencey things, obviously. And I landed on like Nobel Prize type of area. And I was originally just going to do it on the the ridiculous statistics of non-diversity and inclusivity in Nobel Prizes until I found yeah. something called Nobel Disease, um, which I'm so excited to tell you about because it is just chef kiss classic. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. So Sarah, is yours scientific or social? Um, a little bit of social because it's to take science, but then it's, it's a little bit of like almost an anthropology at looking at Nobel Prize winners and their, their shenanigans. It hmm. sounds like we're all just going to shit on science for the next hour. <laughs> it's okay. We're, we're licensed carrying scientists. Oh, that's true. <laughs> well, you know what? I haven't I haven't gone last in a while, so mm-hmm. I'll volunteer for last. Okay. I don't think I've gone first in a while. If that's Yeah, absolutely, that's Sarah. Cool. You go first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Okay, so let's dive into Nobel disease. So first of all, we gotta preface with the Nobel Prizes, which <clears throat> 
I'm sure if you haven't heard about them, you've been living under a rock because they've been going on for a very, very long time. Um, and so Nobel Prizes are like, the, uh, when Alfred Nobel died, he left a huge amount of money to be given out in, you know, different areas of of both science and then also just in life itself. So philosophy um, and, you know, literature and um, peace and things like that. But the sciences are like the most prestigious thing you can do as a scientist is to win the Nobel Prize. Um, however, they've been problematic in many different ways. And I think definitely in the last, you know, 20 years when we realised that the vast majority of Nobel Prizes for sciences have all been given to white men and the average age was 60 years old. Um, mm. And, you know, very little, like, ethnic diversity in the Nobel Prizes, whether it was male or female. Um, but then also for females or female-identifying people, literally it's like you could count them on your hand for each category. Mm. Um, so there's a lot of problems mm -hmm. with that. Um, but when I was stumbling across, you know, doing my, uh, my void research of just getting angry about being a woman in STEM, um, I discovered across like this, this page called Nobel disease. And I'm like, Ooh, I wonder if it is like a true, true disease that was named after Nobel himself. And it's not, it is so good. So Nobel disease or Nobelitis is the embracing of a strange or scientifically unsound ideas by some Nobel Prize winners, usually later in life. It has been argued that the effect results in part from a tendency of Nobel winners to feel empowered by the award, to speak on topics outside their specific area of expertise. Although it is, oh no, yeah. Although it is unknown <laughs> oh, no. whether the Nobel Prize winners are more prone to this tendency than other individuals. Uh, so good. Um, so one one Nobel Prize winner um, warned warned others, and he's like, believing you are expert in almost everything and being prepared to express opinions about most issues with great confidence, sheltering behind the authority of the Nobel Prize can give you Nobel disease, um, which has been described as tongue-in-cheek term. And so he, he won the Nobel Prize and basically gave a warning to the other Nobel Prize winners. It's like, you're an expert in a very specific area. Uh, right stay in your lane exactly Don't branch out. <laughs> exactly and what no so wait okay no but for real though the number of times i've heard astrophysicists start talking about covid it's like okay i understand this is important to talk about and i understand that you are very good at statistics mm -hmm. but, but like let you're the, not that kind of doctor yeah let the immunologist explain what covid is and you know yes i mean i do think it is important for all of us to talk about i do want to say that but the number of people who just came forward suddenly with a second degree in immunology <laughs> like, I, you know take a seat here hon you don't have to be the smartest person in the room all the time you know like <laughs> yeah and so being in science i think we see this a lot with you know because i think what some people don't realize if you're not in the sciences is that the further you go with science you become so narrowly narrow na narrow narrowly god can't say that word you become <laughs> so specific in your expertise and your research so 
you know, Lindsay and I are astrophysicists. However, we know very different things to each other because our research, even though it's, you know, mm-hmm. comparable on the base level that we study stars that are dying, different aspects of this. And, you yes. know, people who have been studying it for many, many years, the very old professors, they are, you know, absolute experts in one, two or three very niche things. Um, and, yeah, it's, you know, just because you're a physicist does not mean that you're an expert in medical physics or astrophysics or, you know, it is, you are very niche in your understanding. And, of course, yes. you can have, like, a general idea of the principles of physics and things like that. But, uh, for example, we, I shouldn't be using physics for an example because the majority of uh, Nobel Prize winners who have had the Nobel disease have been in medicine. And I think this is really interesting to look at because medicine is so broad. The human body and understanding what is happening physiologically is so immensely broad that it is impossible to be an expert on all levels of medicine because there they just is not enough time for one human to learn it all. And GPs obviously have a, you know, a very good understanding of just general overall health. However, when you get really specific into different parts of the body, those specialists have trained for many, many years to understand mm. something. Um, but I do like I feel like I've seen just in my own personal experience talking to doctors about different things that some will dismiss things very quickly even though they're not an expert in the thing that they are dismissing or the thing that they are encouraging um and yeah so I thought that was quite quite fascinating um like once I had a like I've always had like stress-related bowel problems sorry tmi welcome to the podcast (laughs) Um, but i get my tummy hurts my tummy has hurt for a very long time Um, it's okay it's much better now but years ago i had my gallbladder out and i was seeing a gastro gastrointestinal specialist um and he was doing like a questionnaire about you know my life and things like that he was I came out of there bawling my eyes out and had to ring my <gasps> mummy and like just debrief because he, before, before I had to have a colonoscopy, he just was asking questions and I mentioned that, you know, I was finishing my honours and I was applying for PhDs and he's like, do you think you'll get one? Like, do you think you'll get into a program? And I'm like, oh, you know, I hope so. But yeah, then, that's why I fucking applied. Yeah, and then it was just like talking a lot about stress in my life. And that year, um, I had lost my cousin to suicide, so it was all trigger warning. Oh. Um, yeah, so I it was a very stressful year, and so he basically put down all my gut issues to stress, and then started telling me like he was it was speaking as if he was a psychologist or a psychiatrist, um, mm. telling me that it was all in my head. And I was just oh like, God. um, but you haven't even, you haven't, you haven't even looked at my bowels. Like you haven't looked at the thing you're meant to look at yet before diagnosing me. Um, look into mm-hmm. my bowels before trying to look into my soul. I just want to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look inside me before you look inside me. Thank you. Exactly. Um, 
and yeah, it did turn out I have like mild inflammatory things going on, but it never got like no apology or anything like that. Um, but he's just, and that experience was just the pinnacle of what I think Nobel disease is where you just believe you're an expert yeah. in everything and anything. Um, and so I have some good examples, uh, which I think are just so funny. Okay, so let's start. Let's laugh at people. <laughs> let's just start off laughing at people. Yes. Okay, so have you heard the old wives' tale that if you feel like you're getting sick, you should just take a, a shit ton of vitamin C? Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. uh, which I still, I must admit, like I often take vitamin C when I'm feeling a bit run down, even though I don't know if it does anything. And after doing a little bit of research, it probably doesn't. Um, because, <gasps> you know, you can't just build up different levels of immunity, especially most of the time when you're feeling sick, it's, a, it's an immunocompromised thing. It's not just you don't have your vitamins, you didn't eat your veggies. Um, so a lot of the time, yes, vitamin C might help in certain ways, but it's not like it's going to kick the colds, but that, that, that's not how it works. Um, however, this, this myth was, um, perpetuated by someone named Linus Pauling. So he won the Nobel prize in chemistry in 1954. And so he's a chemist, uh, you know, a fantastic chemist. However, he later in life become an advocate for, needing to take very high doses of vitamin C to overcome anything. And so this is where it comes, the idea of, you know, you need to take vitamin C to, you know, help the common cold. Um, But it got a little bit more extra than that. He advocated, again, he's a chemist. He advocated that taking very high doses of vitamin C would have therapeutic values for schizophrenia. Uh, and it would also prolong cancer patients' lives. And then... Ooh. So it's a cure-all. Yeah, pretty much. You're feeling crap, take a vitamin C. Like, yeah. you're hallucinating, take a vitamin C. Like, it's just that... It, yeah, a chemist. Again, not even a medical doctor. Yeah. Chemist. Um, and my favourite line from his paragraph is, these claims are not supported by the best available science. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, and many, many links to um, different research papers on, you know, the, the effectiveness of vitamin C for different things. Um, but, yeah, I thought that was fascinating because I'm like, oh, I feel personally attacked because I do have my vitamin C in the cupboard <laughs> that I take when I get a runny nose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, even my parents are like, you know, I'm not going to get COVID because I take vitamin C, like, supplements. <laughs> oh, I wish it was that easy. I know. Yeah, if only. And stupid me, I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> oh, good. Good for you. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's let's jump on to uh, Luke Monting- Montinger. So he won the Nobel Please. Prize in physiologic physiological physiology or medicine in two thousand and eight. So this is my favorite. Has anyone heard of? Of course, you've heard of it. the The idea that water has memory. 
Yes. No. Wait, what? No. Oh, no, Drew. I know so much about this. It's the worst. So, Drew, it is uh, some very criticized scientists believe that you can, like, water could contain memory of something. So if you put something with a certain DNA in water and then dilute it down so it's, you know, almost completely undetectable that water would still have those properties so it's this idea that you could make like healing water out of different nanostructures um which again scientifically no it's just it's if we could make healing water out of different things everyone would be drinking it and we'd all be you know at the fountain of youth um so it is like super pseudosciencey um and very it it's comes a lot from like homeopathic type treatments where it's a little mm-hmm. yeah absolutely a little you know hand wavy at best um and so luke he you know again uh he won the Nobel prize in medicine um but he is you know an avid believer that you could uh get rid of or you could fight different viruses or diseases in the human body by drinking water that had once had the dna of such viruses or uh you know bacteria oh, shit. yeah this is that diluting yeah yeah i feel like essential oils are very adjacent to this yeah absolutely they're definitely at the same lunch table um <laughs> oh, no. i like that i like that a lot oh thank you Oh, so, <laughs> so what is so funny is that his reasoning behind this is uh, quantum field theory. So again, not a physicist, but you know, quantum field theory says that everything vibrates. The moment you say quantum, here we go. <laughs> the moment you say quantum, people are like, I believe it. Exactly. I, I can believe that, yeah. Exactly. So he's, you know, he argues that, um, so everything vibrates at different uh, vibrational Frequen- frequencies, frequencies which you know yes yeah that is that is physics yes however that does not transfer into the water molecules if you have one tiny molecule of your disease or of your bacteria or whatever it is not all of the water starts vibrating at that frequency that doesn't make sense because if you're vibrating at a specific frequency you are that specific combination of subatomic particles like it just right. it's but yeah so, so. <laughs> <laughs> i like that roll of the r <laughs> sorry um yeah so he believes like you can purify water via these and he calls them radio waves that's it's not oh. a radio wave dude anyway anyway he's very oh, pro- no yeah very problematic um he also uh believes that vaccines cause autism which is just a whole whole nother can of worms and wholly discredited by every available scientific study we've ever had it is just nonsense so that's that's luke um luke (laughs) yeah exactly um next i'm gonna talk about um the man who holds quote nearly unbeatable record for the shortest time between receiving a Nobel Prize and saying something really freaking stupid about the field in which the recipient had little experience. Tell me it was during the speech. It was during the speech. 
<laughs> yes. I love also, can I just say, I love that there was a record that like somebody's got a stopwatch and they're like, how long until you do something really fucking stupid? Yes. <laughs> um, so, so it's Nicholas uh, Tinderbergen. He won the 1973 Nobel Prize in Physiologic... Oh, I can't say that word. In medicine. He won the Nobel Prize for, for body or medicine. Um, sure. So during his Nobel Prize acceptance speech... So again, he's not a psychologist or, you know, a behavioural scientist. Um, he promoted the widely discredited refrigerator mother hypothesis for the causation of autism. Now... So this idea of the refrigerator mother is, so it's, again, widely disproved, not scientifically sound at all, but it's the idea that children are more likely to have autism if their mothers didn't touch them or hug them enough. Oh my God. Which is absolute bullshit at the highest, highest level. Yeah. 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 There's a lot that stems from that that is incredibly wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't like that at all. Yeah, so he's the so kind. He said that during his speech. How did he work that in? I have no idea how he worked. How he worked that. By in. the way, if you're unloved. <laughs> yeah. Wait, what? yeah. So, do you want to know what he won the Nobel Prize for? Nothing. What? Nothing to do with autism. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for. Discoveries concerning organization and elicitation of individual and social behavior patterns in animals. So it's the study of animal behavior. So, okay, here's where I want to make the plug that, like, I I feel like I can say this as a scientist among scientists. I feel like I really want to put... Stand on my soapbox for a minute and say that, like, the same way that people unhealthily worship celebrities and follow celebrity advice this is i mean this is a dangerous thing to say because in an era of misinformation here i am about to say don't listen to scientists <laughs> well listen but to scientists to... in the specific field of which they are a scientist exactly 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 like it comes back to staying in your lane because this is what i think is like a huge problem is that like scientists are people too and like you know people humans are are fallible and it just really, you know, really gets on my nerves when people say, oh, well, because they're a scientist, they must be right. Like, they just get this free pass. Mm-hmm. And it's just so, it's infuriating because it's like, you know, this guy had no business speaking on autism, but because he's a Nobel Prize winning scientist, like, people will believe him. But then at the same time, I mean, it just, it's equally frustrating to be like, nobody's going to listen to Dr. Fauci about, like, oh. COVID. And it's like, that's literally what he does. What he so, does, like, yeah. You know, like- there's no winning. Poor Fauci, he deserves the Nobel Prize in patience because <laughs> he is an absolute legend. And imagine, imagine going through all of last year before the administration swap, just not being listened to as the world leading expert in this. How did he not? Oh my God. Do you remember that video of Trump that was like, him trying like not reading the graph correctly oh. i don't even remember what the graph was yeah. about and i was like i would have reached across the tra- this t- 
table and fucking strangled him. Yeah, that was – I think it was for an Australian interview, actually. And the Yes, I think it yes. was. <laughs> the graph was basically that, you know, US is number one in deaths from COVID, COVID infection, mobility rate, like side effects, like just all of these yes. things that stemmed from COVID. And he's like, yeah, we're number one. And that's, a, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> the Australian interview was like, uh, "That's you don't want to be number one in in this regard. Like you, your your people are literally dropping, dropping like flies. It's really sad. Like the amount of people who have died from COVID in the US. I think now it just out totals like. I I don't know if hold, let me double check this fact, but I thought it, it is very large. Yeah, did it like it's embarrassingly large. Oh, I think we did pass. I think we did yeah. pass that marker. Mm-hmm. Which is just, this is just insane. It didn't have to be that way. It just absolutely did not have to be that way after a certain point. Yep, yep. Yeah. It's killed more people than uh, the toll of three three separate wars. Um, so both World War Two, Korea, and Vietnam. Which is just insane. It's a like lot when, of people. Yeah, it's a lot of people. It is insane. And you think about like the aftermath of World War Two, where so many people, particularly men, had died and trying to rebuild lives around that. And it was a big thing. And then now people are just like, oh, it's nothing. And it's like, no, it's very concerning. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, let's get to a brighter topic i think i might end <laughs> on my absolute favorite uh person with nobelitis <laughs> this is kerry mullis so he won the 1993 nobel prize for chemistry and he's actually scientifically in chemistry a legend so he developed the polymerase chain reaction which drew i'm sure you're a huge fan of PCR. Holy shit! I knew I knew that name, and I was like, "How the fuck do I know that name?" And then, it, yeah, Carrie <laughs> Mullis. He's the PCR. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Do you want to for the for the audience? Do you want to give like a brief plug for PCR? So, polymerase chain reaction allows you to amplify DNA. Um, so it takes a very small amount of DNA and makes it a very large amount of DNA. So you can do a lot more with your DNA because you don't have you're not restricted by how much you have. It's like, it's a way to, to exponentially increase the amount of DNA you have. So it's super useful, especially in forensics, because mm. it's just like, we have very small amount of crime scene DNA, and then bam, we have a lot more that we can actually use. So um, it's a very super, super useful um, procedure. Yeah. Yeah. That's and it's amazing. You just had that immediately. You're like, I know exactly what it says. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> Drew is a legend. Well, and, and until PCR, so a lot of the time when you think about, because I love true crime, and when you learn about a lot of cold cases where they collected, you know, different swabs, but they didn't understand what they might be able to do with these swabs, you know, 50 years later, um, in especially in the 80s and the 90s where they could start doing DNA testing, that testing pretty much ate up the entire sample and you would have literally none left over. And... Like, so a lot of the cases that get solved, cold cases that get solved with today's technology are the ones that, you know, in the 80s and 90s, when they could start doing testing like this, they said no, because they were concerned about it eating up 
all of the sample and they wanted to wait until there was a way to, to do it without completely destroying, you know, everything that they have. Um, which I think is just amazing that, you know, people had the foresight back then to be like, oh, we might wait a few years just in case, um, which is pretty cool. But anyway, so this dude, you know, brilliant, brilliant chemist, uh, however, <laughs> he disagreed with the widely accepted and scientifically verified view that AIDS causes uh, is caused by the HIV virus. Um, so, yep, he just did not believe that AIDS was a, a result from having HIV. I, I don't know how he didn't believe that because there's so much evidence to say that it is. Um, he also yeah. questioned <laughs> the evidence for human contributions to global warming, which... Woof. 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 I don't know how any scientist... I, I just I don't know. I'm speechless. Um, That's really shameful. Yeah, the poor planet was fucking a robot. Um, and then uh, he also professed his strong belief for astrology. Um, and this is my favorite line I've ever read on a Wikipedia article. Are you ready? Oh, no. Yes, go for it. And he claimed that once he encountered a fluorescent raccoon that spoke with him. Oh, my. <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> that's it. That's the Nobel. That's our. That's our Alice Prize. Yeah. The best line. There you go. Yeah. So I think that wraps up. That is Nobel. Nobel disease. Where it's if you're an expert, stay in your lane. Yeah. Don't don't be a douche. You know. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That makes me feel, you know, I'm really glad we could kick things off just feeling better than smart people. (laughs) 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 What a great way to start. Like, yeah, I'm I'm better than those people. (laughs) Uh, I highly recommend um, anyone who's listening to go to go Google it afterwards, because there's some there's some other rabbit holes of like people who on it are just unbelievable. Um, And one I didn't bring up was... um, the Nobel Prize winner for basically discovering, um, you know, like DNA, like being able to, to break down DNA and, and, and sequence it. Um, however, he was a strong belief that uh, across human races, like you could, you could make differences with our DNA. And of course, our D- in, in our DNA, there's different things that, you know, things either switch on or off for different traits. Um, however, he was a bigoted racist who just outwardly claimed that anyone of, you know, black or indigenous descent were intellectually less smart than Caucasians because of their DNA, which has wow scientifically Good. not not a thing at all, and is the most yeah I uh, yeah I can't, Woof. he's just awful. But if you want to learn more about that, um. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it just makes you furious. Is this person still alive? I think he might be, yeah. Let's start a Patreon to go kick him in the fucking gut. (laughs) (laughs) It's just... Yeah, it's fascinating. It's sad. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. 
I don't know. Like, how- I want to go to all these people and just rip their their Nobel Prize away from them and just smack them across the face maybe once or twice, like like a fish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just no. So should like, we go like, in kindergarten? Like if you if you're like rude in on the playground in kindergarten, like you don't get your cookies. So yeah, I would exactly. just like to go up to racists and be like, okay, you don't get to have fucking anything. Exactly. It's uh, it's astounding. I yeah. Wow, everyone punch a racist today. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, should we go to Drew? Yeah, I'm fired up. What you got, Drew? You're going to tell us about Uh, moles. Can we take a break? I really have to pee. (laughs) Yes, yes, we can. Do you love a good story? Her American Story is a podcast for anyone who loves a good story. First and second generation American women share their American experience. Sharing our stories helps us to relate to one another, build understanding, as well as provide representation for those that need it most. I grew up in a smaller American town and lacked representation in my community and simply in media at that time. I created something I wanted to hear. I hope this podcast reaches those that need it most, as well as serves as a collection of simply interesting stories. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at HerAMStory. Everyone has the story. Share yours with me. Email me at HerAmericanStory at gmail.com. Oh my god, John, were you up on Wikipedia all night? John, are you okay? You're you're shaking. You guys, you will not believe what I just read on Wiki. Welcome to Reddit on Wiki, the poorly researched, semi-funny podcast on random stuff we find on the internet. Who, who are you talking to? And why are you shaking so much? Subscribe to Reddit on Wiki on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Sean, I'm scared. Me too, buddy. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) We left off on Drew, and then you were like, I have to pay now. I gotta pay. (laughs) Sorry. Tell us about moles. Okay. So the unit, uh, the mole as a unit. So I'm not sure how much you two have encountered moles, molarity, or molar mass. I'm sure you've encountered it in, yeah, you know, a little bit. Like here or there, but the mole reason, is very. Go on. For some reason, we use it when we're talking about abundance in the sun. Sometimes <laughs> you use like, moles. Yeah, well, sometimes what we do have to use like mean. Uh, well, I guess we use mean molecular weight. Actually, that's not the same thing as moles. We we use moles when we do thermodynamics, but then like nothing else. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, I don't know, Sarah. If you if you encounter it in different places. I have never personally had to use a mole, thank God. Really? Yeah. Well, I used it a lot in high school. Oh, like actually, chemistry. yeah. In, I mean, not in my professional research career in learning science yeah. for sure. Um, but yeah, as a in my PhD and in research, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very important to chemistry as it's a very convenient way to express the amounts of reactants and products in a chemical reaction, such as two moles of hydrogen gas, H2, and one mole of oxygen gas, O2, forming two moles of water. So without the mole as a base unit, it would be very difficult to express that kind of chemical reaction. So, you know, moles are very, very important. That makes sense. So the, 
the current definition of moles, which was changed the 20th of May, 2019. So very, very recently. No way. Yes, 2019. This is hot go- Everyone, this is hot goss. Pay attention. Hot gossip. <laughs> so uh, the 20th of May, 2019, the mole is defined as containing exactly 6.022140076 times 10 to the 23rd elementary entities. So this could Y'all be got that? used. <laughs> Y'all got that? <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. This could be used to measure the number of atoms, ions, electrons, or basically any other elementary entity that you want to measure. So this number was specifically chosen uh, so that one mole of chemical compound in grams is numerically equal to the average mass of one molecular, well, sorry, one molecule of the compound in Daltons. So we go further down the rabbit hole in Daltons. So a Dalton... (laughs) A Dalton is a unif- is the unified atomic mass unit, which is 1.660 times 10 to the negative 27th kilograms, which can be used to express the mass of atomic, su- uh, atomic scale objects. For example, one, one mole of water contains 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd, Avogadro's number, uh, molecules uh, whose total mass is 18.015 grams, and the mass of one molecule of water is 18.015 Daltons. So Daltons and moles allow you to talk about either one molecule of something or a bunch of molecules of something. So it's very good to have Daltons and, and moles because moles allows you to work in grams versus using Daltons because Daltons suck because they're so, you know, it's like you can measure the mass of an electron in Daltons and that's, you know, you don't want to be measuring that out, do you? Mm. <laughs> you know what you I mean? Want, you don't want to be measuring out an electron at a time. Yeah, no, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> So the mole also allows chemists to define the concentration of a solution or molarity in that molarity is defined as the amount of dissolved substance in moles per unit volume solution. So the mole is super important to chemistry, and this is speaking as a biochemist, as it allows us to speak about measurements in grams versus measuring things in Daltons, as I said, and the mass of one mole of substance is equal to the molecular mass in grams. So, um, so why don't they just, sorry, why don't they just use grams then? Well, because grams isn't directly linked to moles, and so it's, it's kind of hard to, to work with grams. But if you start using moles, then you're able to say the molecular mass is in grams. You know what I mean? No, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the molecular mass on the periodic table, that's technically in, in Dalton's. And so you're able to work with moles of that or grams of that by saying a mole of that, that, that atom, a mole of that atom equals this many grams. Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. So that, that's, it makes, it makes life so much easier because you're able to say, it's basically saying like, oh, you know, a bunch of this shit is going to be this many grams. And it's easier to count that way rather than just a gram. Like just yeah. counting a gram. Got you. Yes. Yes. So um, you may be asking, what's the history of moles? And you know what, Lindsay? I'm going to fucking tell you. (laughs) I'm going to sit right here and you're going to, you're just going to fucking tell me. I'm going to sit right here and you tell me. Calm down. I'm going to tell you. Okay. Okay. I'm going to buckle my seatbelt back on. Buckle buckle your seatbelt in because the mole, the history of the mole is intertwined with the history of molecular mass, atomic mass units, and the Avogadro's number. So three things. Oh. It's intertwined with all three. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> no, it doesn't deserve it. <laughs> well, just anytime you're like, and it's connected to Avogadro's number. Number, but it is. Okay, so the first table of standard atomic weight, uh, atomic mass, was published by John Dalton in 1805, which was based on a system in which the atomic mass of hydrogen was defined as one. So everything else was based off of the hydrogen being one. So basically, uh, this relative, sorry, these relative atomic masses were based on stoichiometric proportions of chemical reactions and compounds. And stoichiometry is the relationship between quantities of reactants and products. Uh, so if we were I to take the reaction of what I used to know that because what a <laughs> fun word that is stoichiometry. Yeah. Sounds very New Jersey. It's a great word. Yo, hey, oh, hey, stoichiometry. Hey, oh, hey. <laughs> hey, I'm stoichiometry here. <laughs> hey, you hit him on the head. You give him a good stoichiometry on the head. <laughs> Sarah, welcome but, to New Jersey culture. Welcome to New Jersey. <laughs> oh, my God. I've only been to New Jersey. Oh, that's a lie. I've been there a couple times because Princeton's in New Jersey. I forgot about that. Um, but the only oh, time I've, I've ended up in like New Jersey near Manhattan was uh, we took the wrong ferry from the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> and the ferry went, <laughs> went to the New Jersey port, which was in the middle oh. of freaking nowhere. And we ended up walking oh, for yeah. ages to try find somewhere to call like a taxi or like somewhere to book an uber pin because we were just like in the middle of like a shipping yard but the view, oh my from, God. The view from there was absolutely spectacular like the manhattan skyline was just incredible uh but yeah that was that was my adventure into new jersey and i was a little afraid. <laughs> it's about, it's about the journey it's about the journey yeah where was I? Basically, Dalton standardized atomic weights using hydrogen as one atomic mass unit. Okay. That's so, okay, yeah. right. That's where we were. Yes. Yeah. So, John Jacob Berzelius, on the other hand, aimed to standardize atomic masses using oxygen, which is much more useful because oxygen actually forms compounds with other elements, especially metals. So, hydrogen, it doesn't really form very many compounds, while oxygen forms a ton of compounds because it's way more reactive. And Berzelius um, wanted to basically fix the atomic mass of oxygen at 100, which really didn't catch on in the end, but he wanted to fix it at 100 so that everything else would be based off of oxygen. But that really, really didn't catch on because no one really wanted to keep oxygen at 100. Um, so then a bunch of other scientists began to expand on Berzelius's work. But instead of using the definition, but instead of using um, oxygen at 100, they used hydrogen at one. And so they kind of combined the two between Dalton and Berzelius. And so they ended up with oxygen at one, I'm sorry, hydrogen at one and oxygen at mass of 16, which later became the standard as it was way more convenient to use. And so how does moles actually interact with this? So the yes. term mole was a translation in 1897 from the German unit mole which, you know, not too big of a difference, as coined by Wilhelm <laughs> Oswald um, in 1894 uh, from the German word molecule. <laughs> oh, that makes I sense. I always wondered if it had to do with molecule. Yes, it does. Molecule was the, the German word molecule. Uh, sorry, it should be molecule. Um, oh, that's where God. the term mole came from. 
I was secretly hoping it had to do with like the animal mole. No, it doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> I love moles. They're so cute. So Oswald at the around 1900 wrote that the, mo the molecular weight of a substance expressed in grams shall henceforth be called the mole and the amount of gas that occupies a volume of 22,414 milliliters in normal conditions is called a mole. So, so that number may seem very, very random, but it came from the ideal gas law, which I don't know if you two remember that, but it's, it's PV equals NRT, mm -hmm. where pressure yeah. times volume equals number of moles times your ideal gas constant times temperature. Oh, and do you mean one of the most important equations in thermodynamics? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but for, the, for, for those who don't know, that's what it means. Um, like such nerds. Thermodynamics is my It's my love language, Sarah I would go so far as to say I'm really fucking obsessed <laughs> That's the one That's the one condition I'll be like, yeah, let's talk about this Yeah, give me Pivner and I'm, I'm in <laughs> No Oh my god, that's, that's amazing Three I saw this amazing meme that was like, three words better than I love you, assume ideal gas. <laughs> can it, Drew, can it's you true. update your Tinder profile to say, just give me Pivner? Give me Pivner and I'll be happy. <laughs> give me Pivner, give me Pivner or give me death. <laughs> give, be the PV to my NRT. <laughs> Okay, even even I would swipe left on that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Jeez. So so this directly connects Avogadro's number to moles and moles directly to molar mass. So there we go. Now we have moles as Avogadro's number and molar mass. Oh, sorry, jeez, you got me on that Tinder <laughs> No, this is good. This is good. Okay, good. So now we're jumping ahead uh, a bit to the development of mass spectrometry, and so oxygen sixteen was became the standard of the standard substance that they used to calibrate everything. But uh, in the nineteen sixties, this was replaced by carbon twelve, where the the definition of mole was defined as the amount of substance in a system which contains as many elementary entities as those. Uh, I'm sorry, as there are atoms in 0.012 kilograms of carbon-12. So thus the definition of one mole of pure carbon-12 has a mass of exactly 12 grams. So the mole became an SI unit from then on in 1971. So now, so can I, go on. I'm sorry, I just want to ask, who decides this? The, uh, a, I, there's a committee, isn't there? Yes, there's a huge committee. I'm forgetting the name of it, but there was... It, it was like the the committee of standards. No, I'm thinking of NIST right now, and that's not NIST. Um, it's like an, an international committee that decides this. Okay. But sorry, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's it is an international committee the that decides international this. International system of units is. I think NIST does have something to do with it. NIST does, but I don't think it's in, NIST isn't is not is international. It, that's American, isn't it? That's American, yes. Maybe they all just meet together and have a little a party about how they measure things. Yes. 
I, would, I do th- think I would go insane if that was my job. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you seen the... What are you? Yeah. Go on. Um, Sorry? Oh, I was going to say, have you guys seen the, the new beautiful kilogram SI thing? Because the thing that... No, I haven't. Had, yeah, the thing that we had to measure what a kilogram was, was technically decaying. So in X amount of... <gasps> so many years or hundreds of years it would be less than a kilogram and so i think the new kilogram is based off of they based it off some type of molecular structure of like a stable stable thing um but let me find sorry i'm trying to find a picture for you it's okay. While you find that, I'm just going to say the in 2019, which is very, very recent, the mole is no longer defined uh, in terms of physical objects, but rather defined in the terms of a physical constant. So instead of using carbon-12 to define the mole, a uh, mole is literally, literally just became 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd, elementary entities of a substance. So it was no longer defined by a substance. It was purely just like, it's this thing. The number. It's a constant. Yeah. That's so much more reliable because then we get stuck in this like, oh, the kilogram decayed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's yeah. And funny enough, that's there's actual criticisms of the mole as an SI unit, which I'll get into. But that was one of the, the very many criticisms of it was that it's just like, why measure a, a physical thing when we have these physical constants? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, so here the so the kilogram, the actual measurement of a kilogram, has lost about forty micrograms since the since like its inception as an SI unit, which is about the mass of an eyelash. So not very much, but it is very tiny. <gasps> um, so yeah, that's why they adjusted it. To, with the new definition, what is the new definition? Give it to me. <laughs> we need to know the public needs to know the public needs to know about the definition of <laughs> of a kilogram i'm, I'm reading the article real quick i forget what it was while you look into that um, <laughs> i'll talk about the <laughs> i'll talk about the first the first criticism of um mole as a as a si unit so oh. the first criticism go on it's like Planck's constant. They're using Planck's constant. Oh, okay. So they're using yeah. a constant versus yeah. using like measuring something. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, please go on. That I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> exist not knowing what it was again. I'm sorry. That's fine. That's fine. So the first criticism is that the number of molecules slash electrons slash basically anything in a given amount of material in a dimensionless quantity that can be expressed simply as a number and therefore cannot be associated with a discrete base unit. So what this means is that if you were to count the number of electrons in a substance, the value would just be a number of electrons and should not be associated with a base unit. It just does it, it would just be a number. And so you don't need a base unit to say this many number of electrons. It would just be that many electrons. Do you know what I mean? Or is mm. that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the second criticism is that the official mole is based on an outdated concept of substantive and logically cannot apply to electrons or dissolved ions since there's no electron or dissolved ion substance that can be used as a base measurement. 
So this criticism is now basically void because it, well, it's a bit void because now we're using just a pure physical constant versus using a substance. But it was actually very interesting to think about because you can't, you know, you can't measure a mole of electrons or you can't measure a mole of dissolved ions because, you know, there's no hunk of electrons or no hunk of dissolved ions that you can really measure. So I just found that very, very interesting. <laughs> Some of this seems a little circular to me. Yeah, it, it kind of is at the end, at the end of the day, it a little, it a, a little bit is, but these are people who are measuring measurements. And so it's kind of, you know, this is their thing being a little circular. But this I, don't, is what I mean, this like, is like I would hate this job. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be a bit too tedious for my chaotic mind. Yeah. I think I would, I think I would really flip the table and I mean that literally. I think if you put me in this job for two days, I'd be like, fuck this. Fuck this. The table. <laughs> <laughs> but great that people do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Someone's got to do it. All right. So the third criticism is about the use of mole in thermodynamics. Here we go. How could that? Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, can you put in like a little job? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Here we oh. go. Jersey remix. Let's go. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I'm literally I didn't even notice until this moment. I'm repositioning myself so that I am like, <laughs> like on the edge of my seat. So <laughs> you were really digging okay. these criticisms. <laughs> She's ready. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, so basically, the the mole in thermodynamics is irrelevant to analytical chemistry and causes avoidable costs to maintain the substance that measure that the measurement is based off of. So basically, so it sucks. Yeah, exactly. It sucks. The, <laughs> the, the, the substance that they use is, is so expensive to maintain that like, why are we maintaining it when it's not really even relevant to modern analysis? Mm. It's just kind of there, you know, <laughs> it, just, it just is there. Yeah, it's there. And it's, it's so they're saying that the SI unit is like is a very outdated chemical measurement and it's unsatisfactory in maintaining the su and bleh. it's unsatisfactory in modern analysis and maintaining the substance is a cost that is not necessary so that's a huge criticism of moles in thermodynamics because it's just like we don't even need this and using it is actually just like a cost that people don't need to like use or, or spend anymore right. mm. so it's just very very funny to me um <laughs> So the, the fourth and fifth criticism kind of are intertwined a little bit because they say that the mole is not a true metric of, or measurement. It's a parametric unit. And then they also say that the, the, a number of entities as quantities of one dimension um, are, must be distinct from entities of units of continuous quantities. So basically what they're trying to say is that the mole is a unit of immeasurable entities and should be defined and should not be defined as a base unit. And there should be a distinction between continuous quantities and innumerable aggregates. So how can something that's innumerable be a base unit? 
it's it, to me this is very confusing <laughs> <laughs> a little bit that is very confusing but it's it's they're saying that there should be a clear di- differentiation between measurements and enumeration because basically we're kind of saying that ah, it's you know it's 6.02 times 10 to the to the 23rd um like electrons or 10 to the 23rd uh, neutrons protons whatever you want to call it you're just kind of saying it is that it's not really a, a direct measurement. And so we need to really... Or like def- nobody counted those. No one counted that. And so it's kind yeah. of an... It's an enumeration versus a measurement. Like a kilogram, you know is exactly that. It's a, it's a kilogram. But yeah. in, it, when you have this enumeration, it's just kind of like, ah, it's whatever. You know, it's, it's, it's this number that, that we're just... We're not assuming it, but I guess we kind of are assuming it at the end of the day. It's just that's it's that number of electrons. No one counted that out. It's just it's an innumerable number. So yeah, I think so that might as well just be that number, like just that number, and we just believe it, or we just yeah, standardize exactly. To that number. It's it's so you don't really need a unit because it's just an innumerable number that you're just kind of assuming. Innumerable number. Yeah, <laughs> well, an innumerable <laughs> object. I don't know. That'd make a great name for a band. Innumerable number. Ooh. <laughs> Innumerable number. I like it. So how I really wanted to cap this off was talking about Mole Day. <laughs> which is coming Wait, up. it's a debt mole? Yes. <gasps> it's coming up on October 23rd. So it starts at 6.02 a.m. and ends at 6.02 p.m., which I found very, very funny. Because it's 6.02 <laughs> times 10 to the negative 23rd. So it's. There, so they there just like couldn't decide. They were just like, okay, make it till both. <laughs> <laughs> so alternatively, some celebrate Mole Day on June 2nd, so 602, or June 22nd, 622, or February 6th, uh, for those who use the day month year format. So that's like you know, most of six, the world. Most of the world, right. yes. <laughs> Because that Sorry. makes so much more sense. It, so, yes, most can, of the world. can confirm that living in a country that does day month year is the pinnacle of existence. <laughs> for, filling, for filling out forms. Very easy. So, so, yeah. Go on. Drew, what's your what's your take? Like, what is the... Uh, what's the... What's the proper mole day? I think the proper mole day... I'm I'm a fan of 622 because 6.022. Um, uh-huh. So there's no rounding going on there. Um, but I don't know the the day month year. I think has it because they're uh, you know they're more ubiquitous than our what is it month day year. So I don't know. I think six of February is, is is a good day to celebrate it. But you know, it's coming up October twenty third. Let's let's all celebrate it at six a.m. <laughs> six <laughs> or two a.m. Celebrate I, exactly. I, I will not be getting out of bed at six a.m. But I will celebrate in spirit. There we go. Just I'll set an alarm. Go, I'll, I'll set an alarm and text all of you. <laughs> Woo! Mole day. Uh, <laughs> so I just. I just found it very funny that even chemists can't agree on on the day it's they, the day it should be celebrated, and they can't agree on if the mole should even exist. So I just found that very funny. So yeah, it's a little bit about the mole as a unit. There's a lot of controversy. 
Yeah, there, there were, I was not expecting there to be that much controversy about a unit, but Maybe you know, no. there we are. Well, it's innumerably numerable. Exactly, it's it's an innumerable number. That was great. Thanks, Drew. You're welcome. I feel I felt a lot smarter reading that. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I guess kind of in a very, very similar vein, um, I'm going to talk about something mildly scientific, but probably not because I'm going to keep laughing a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I like this. Okay. So mine is the history of the foghorn, (laughs) as I told you. I'm so excited. Um, (laughs) But I think that, you know, rather than explaining what a foghorn is, I would like to hear everyone's impression of a foghorn really quick. (laughs) Sarah, it's all yours. The stage is yours. Uh, 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 I I don't know what to do. Like a type of noise. (laughs) Hello? I think... Honk. <laughs> That's good. Honk. Yeah, there you go. Honk. Oh. I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know exactly what a foghorn sounds like, apart from like a big. Oh. That's it. That's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I have tears in my eyes. <laughs> oh. I'm just Drew. You're I'm, gonna blow us away. I'm just imagining. I'm just. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's a good folk horn. Oh my god. Maya's like, go on. Yeah. Oh, I just saw the waveform for my my wall. It's it's really something. Yeah. It's a bit like um, Dory trying to talk to a whale. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. That, that's what I've got, Lindsay. <laughs> that's great. So I I guess this is stupid. I So growing up, I would hear foghorn, because, you know, as I was saying, grew up on the Hudson, you know, Hudson River, grew up near, you know, maritime times. I don't know. Um, I would hear <laughs> foghorns all the time, or, you know, maybe this is... Maybe this is relevant to, to you guys or, or your um, backgrounds, wherever you grew up. But I would hear a foghorn and I never quite understood why they were needed because I was like, yeah, no shit, there's fog. Like, I don't need <laughs> <It's> not- <laughs> a horn to tell me there's fog. Like, oh, my never- God. It's not- oh, my God. That is so cute. I really, I truly never understood. In fact, it took me till just now to realize that I never understood that. But... Um, <laughs> You know, this just goes to show you anybody can pursue a degree in astrophysics. But what I wanted to get at was that um, the the need for a foghorn arises from the idea, if you are stupid like me, uh, no, let's, that's hard. Let's be a little bit kind. Um, if you just never really thought that hard about boats like me, <laughs> um, in the fog, it's very hard to see uh, light. Mm-hmm. Of course. So um, a lighthouse is not going to be very helpful in telling you when you are close to land, a.k.a. danger, if you're traveling at a high speed. So foghorns were important as a way of penetrating the fog to let boats uh, know, like, hey, this is where the port is, or you should come this way. 
It's like okay. a little siren, um, siren sound to help direct them. Exactly. Yeah. Like siren is in like the ancient Greek siren. Yes, right? like- yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I got you. That was very poetic. Um, but so believe it or not, it's, it's not as straightforward as make a loud sound. Now the boat knows where you are. Um, because apparently the, the prop, not to get too deep into the science, but the properties of fog are basically like a really thick air and sound waves are the compression of air. So if you're moving through two different materials, AKA fogless air and fog filled air, your sound speed is going to change Mm. as the wave travels through the air. And so what this actually means to people on a boat or people who are trying to, you know, navigate safely is that they may hear a sound and think shore is a mile away and it could be four miles away. Um, Other weird things can happen like sound waves can kind of skip entire areas. So you could hear a sound wave for like one mile out not hear it two miles out and then hear it again three miles out oh that's probably got um, to do with like the like the waves interfering like constructive and destructive like interference yeah i didn't look too into like the physics to be honest um yeah it probably has to do with like because another thing that of course fog can do is stop sound dead in its tracks so I guess this mm. would be like the extreme case of like dampening the sound. Um, but you know, awesome. it, other weird th- fog is pretty like it is epic. Uh, of the f- of the four elements, if you were like air and water, I'd be like that's pussy shit. I'm but fog. now when we talk about fog, <laughs> <laughs> so um, some a- another complication that can arise is that it can even change directions. You could think oh, I've got, I've got land dead ahead, and it's actually to your right. So fog can really play some tricky um, tricks. <laughs> tricky tricks. <laughs> some tricky tricks on you. Um, so a, a, an efficient fog signal that is independent of light um, was of great importance to people who are especially traveling by boat. Mm-hmm. So this people have been traveling by boat for a super, super long time. But the first fog signals were actually developed in Europe in the 1700s. It's a relatively new invention. Wow. <laughs> relatively. I can't, I can't stop laughing at the thought of this. But the first, the first fog signal, um, especially so in 1700s, the first one implemented in Boston was in 1719. <laughs> it was just a cannon. <laughs> <laughs> just a Imagine like, oh, there's fog. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what's so funny to me is that if there's fog, like no one can fucking see anything. So you're just blindly firing a cannon like into. (laughs) I wonder how many cannon casualties there were from people trying. Oh my god. Right, like, like you're trying to tell a boat, like, "Hey, there's land here," and you just fucking shoot through the side of the boat like a fucking cannon. So, so the communication that would happen back and forth is a boat enters the Boston Harbor, and, then, and 
they shoot off a cannon to be like, hey, we're here. And then the Boston Harbor shoots off a cannon and they're like, oh, we heard you. Revolutionary War didn't happen yet. Never mind. <laughs> it's just like, this is like so. Uh, you know, I relate to this because when there are delicate problems, I always approach them with a fucking sledgehammer. And to me, this is one of those cases because we all know the answer. We all know the, the answer is a foghorn. But approaching a foghorn problem with a fucking cannon is, I just relate it on a very personal level. Oh my god! So, <laughs> anyway, so so the way this would go day to day is that lighthouse keepers, when it was really foggy, like you can't just shoot off one cannon and be like, "Oh, everybody knows there's fog here, and everyone knows where the port is." Like, no, you need to continuously shoot off cannons to let ships know that it is still foggy and we are still here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so lighthouse keepers for fucking days would shoot off cannons repeatedly from the lighthouse wow that's a lot of effort as well it is and of course just like you were saying before with casualties and stuff um a lot of lighthouse mirrors and windows usually shattered oh no so it was it was like expensive as far as labor but also like physically or like you know, like quite, quite, like literally expensive, mm. like, like yeah. physical materials. Yeah. yeah. So one example was they started to implement this on the West Coast. And apparently, so this, this area, the first place it was implemented was called Point Bonita in California. And the area was so foggy that it experienced a thousand hours of fog a year. Wow. as a lot of fog. And a worker sent a very tired letter to his boss that said, I've been up here three days and nights and I have only had two hours of rest. Meaning for three days and nights, he had to shoot off a cannon repeatedly. How, what was the time gap between the cannon shots? Like, do you think it was every um, five minutes? Or did- it varied very much on where, um, so I'll give some examples of other methods that were used yeah. that did things like every five minutes, every half hour. So I think it really depends on the location. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I probably up to the lighthouse keeper's discretion, honestly. Yeah. Cause um, if it was like every, also, every half hour, you could get a cheeky 20 minute nap in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then how did you wake up back in the day without an iPhone alarm? Right. Or like any kind of alarm clock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think that there were probably a lot of accidents. Oh, no. Um, And then, you know, just to give you an idea of how expensive this was, um, the second year that a cannon was... (laughs) Okay, that a cannon was implemented in Point Bonita. um, The second year that they did it, they spent $2,000 on gunpowder, which was three times the, the lighthouse worker's salary. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so they were like, that's the end of that. That is, we're not doing that anymore. So they want to, They went on to develop what other sounds can travel through fog. And so another idea. That 
Go on. Another idea that they came up with was a giant metal triangle. (laughs) Four foot long, so longer than a meter, Sarah, on every end. in Maine they were like how about a giant triangle oh my triangle. god how big was the <laughs> stick that they had to hit it with oh my god imagine <laughs> <just a> baseball bat <laughs> oh what a job this, this is the worst job in the world so, so okay at this point to give you an idea we're at 1837 so we're still you know more than 150 years in the past. Things are still developing. Yeah. Um, so, so eventually they're like, okay, we've got to automate this because like you guys have, have put together this really fucking sucks. So um, I'm actually going to volley this to Sarah. Sarah, do you know old timey instruments? Do you know what a governor is? No, I don't. What's a governor? Okay. Drew, have you heard of a governor? I've heard of a governor, but I don't think it's the same governor that you're talking about. <laughs> it's a, it's a person. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, because I've heard about it on like go karts, where they they limit oh. the speed of a go kart using a governor. Oh, I wonder if it derives from the same place. So the reason I knew what a governor was was because I used to work giving tours at telescopes that were made in the 1850s. So it's the same era of time. So it's the same new hot technology. So what a governor is, is really, really simply a chain with a weight at the end. Throw TBT to Drew's talk about weights and kilograms um, and moles. Um, So it's a weight at the end of a chain. And the idea is that you release the weight, and as it falls, it cranks some uh, gears that are ah. up above. So it's using gravity as like stored energy. That makes sense. Using, yeah. Using so all it, that the pull. Energy. Exactly. Exactly. The pull of this weight is cranking the gears as it goes along. So back in the day with old telescopes, these gears would be meticulously manufactured so that a telescope would track at the same time that the Earth's rotation was happening so that you could track stars throughout the sky. You don't have to keep repositioning your telescope. So the gears were positioned so that hours, minutes, seconds that are passing um, also change the direction of the telescope. So actually back then, they used this technology to periodically smack a 20 uh sorry a two-ton bell oh wow. Uh, wow at a lighthouse so the idea is that somebody would crank up this really really long or large governor and then just let it go throughout the night and periodically it would clang a bell um I thought this was so romantic like gothic romantic but <laughs> the governor needs a place to fall uh, so these were normally built on cliff edges. Oh my god! 
Yeah, so all this like old timey, like brooding, like seascape, like fog, and then it's like on the cliff edge, and like this old timey technology, like weight falling slowly and tolling this bell of doom. And, oh, love it. Um, it. Are there pictures? Are there like any left over? Um, none like the ones in my head, but there are. I'm gonna Google it. I want to see how cool they. Are. <laughs> um. But what's funny, so we come back to uh, Lindsay thinks this is fucking hilarious. The sea salt would uh, like rust parts of the governor and so the weight would fall and it would go, oop, (laughs) it's all broken now. (laughs) So it would just be like one loud clang and then the rest of it goes in the ocean. So they were like, okay, let's protect this crank. Um, but the, the process of cranking it up throughout the day was really fucking annoying to people. So they were like, we still, we need to improve. We need to improve this. Mm-hmm. So I guess I, I spoke too soon. Almost everybody was like, we need to improve this. Mm-hmm. Who didn't need to improve this? Turkish ships. And you may be like, why are Turkish yeah. ships so special? You know, Lindsay, you're getting close to the apology corner yet again. <laughs> Anytime you talk about an individual group of people. Um, Turkish ships didn't give a shit because they would use a gong or a gun. They would not use a bell. And the reason is because followers of Muhammad are forbidden to ring bells because bells are the instrument of Satan. Oh. Oh, okay. That's not handy when you need to make a foghorn. No. And I'm glad you said foghorn, Sarah, because up to this point, we have not used a horn except for the next bullet point in my notes. Woohoo! Up to a horn. <laughs> what did they used to call so it? Th- a fog bell. A fog alarm. Fog alarm. That makes sense. Yes, that checks out. Yeah. <laughs> so three men come along Gamewell, Stevens, and Dabble. D A B O L L. Dabble. Dabble. Dabul. Dabul. <laughs> Back to New Jersey. Dab- hey, Dabul, what are you doing? <laughs> so, so Gamewell and Stevens, the first two I mentioned, they are church clock manufacturers. And Cl- Celadon Dabul comes along, joins the two of them. This is now in the 1800s still. And he goes, what if we fucking took a clarinet body and a trumpet head? And then we put fire and gravity in it. (laughs) (laughs) What if we just made a really big, annoying clarinet? (laughs) Like, also of all the instruments, right? Like, who's like clarinet's going to save the day? Yeah, clarinet. I'll do an apology corner for clarinet players later. (laughs) <laughs> but the so Debol comes along Debol I'm gonna say it differently every time comes along and uh, he comes up with a coal-fired engine that compresses air and pushes it through this this clarinet trumpet like there's a giant metal reed in it and that's wow. where we kind of get the first like real horn this is now in 1860 um sorry Sarah did you find any cool pictures no, I couldn't find any cool pictures, unfortunately. Some cool articles, You're but no, no, no picture. My, roman- my romantic description, I'm telling you. 
Maybe we can get someone to draw us a picture from your description. <laughs> Commission some woodblock prints. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, 1860 now, we've got the, the fire-powered clarinet. That's, like, what's keeping us safe. Um, and so the natural progression from uh, these coal-fired engines were a uh, steam engine. So mm-hmm. we, we get, uh, 1860s is about the time that the steam, steam engine becomes everybody's favorite solution to every problem. So then these are steam-powered. Uh, however, <laughs> this... This is definitely not as funny as Sarah's quote from a wiki article, but this is one of my favorite quotes that I have read while doing this show. A reporter wrote the experience of of this hell clarinet. Hell clarinet. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, I can't wait. This so we are not yet at the like that hasn't been invented yet like we had to develop that okay these are like the fucked up attempts along the way so this is the most dramatic thing i have read it's about the clarinet it had quote a screech like an army of panthers weird and prolonged gradually lowering in note until after half a minute it becomes the roar of a thousand mad bulls with intermediate voices of suggestive of the wail of a lost soul the moan of a bottomless pit and the groan of a disabled elevator (laughs) (laughs) oh Oh my my god God. what a great writer so dramatic it's a fucking siren the groan of a disabled elevator (laughs) 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 lindsay's lost it lindsay's lost it (laughs) why is the history of this really mundane thing so fucked up We went from cannons to the moan of a bottomless pit. I love this. So good. sorry for people who were living near that yes. <laughs> and had to deal with that all night. I don't want. I don't want to know what an army of panthers sounds like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is so bad. Okay. Anyway, so so that was around 1860. So perhaps due to bad press in about 1870, they started experimenting. And when I say they, I mean there was like an entire U.S. government department dedicated to figuring out the fucking the fog, fog whistle deal. Yeah, the fog light. The what? I called it a fog light. Yeah. The foghorn situation. The foghorn, yes. Like, this was, like, a whole area of research. So they start fucking around with factory whistles, locomotive whistles, sirens, bells, trumpets. And um, presumably they try this out, you know, I'm going to stand over here on land. Tell me what you hear. You on a boat, whatever. So they, they declare that the siren is the most penetrating. So this is the best option to go with, which is why we still hear a siren today. Um, but a Canadian firm developed something called the diaphone, which is also called the super typhon. I guess if you're a real fan, you know that. And that's the one that has the boo. boo. 
Mm-hmm. And that didn't come about until 1900. Um, but it wasn't introduced in the United States until 1914. So, like, really just over 100 years ago, we, we developed the sound, which I guess is pretty old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot younger but than I thought we, it was going to be, though. A lot, which, what? A lot younger than I than I thought it was. Yeah, it's something I really take for granted and clearly know nothing about. It just It's just this annoying sound. I'm like, yeah, I know there's fog. Uh, anyway (laughs) um so so about 1914 um the americans catch on and they're like oh that's good like we're gonna take that and so then we start developing it here um and then the rest is like pretty mellow after that drew are you laughing because i said oh that's that's good good. (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah, so that it becomes what we know here. And at the end of this article, like I said, I, I really owe this, this. The Wikipedia article was very sparse, and I'm definitely going to go in and add some of the work of Wayne Wheeler. So Wayne Wheeler wrote this whole article for the United States Lighthouse Society. Um, it's a whole website, uslhs.org. Um, and he wrote all of the history and put in some really cool pictures himself. Um, so I owe all of this to him. I think it's so cool. And at the end of the article, um, he tacks on some weird alternatives that never really caught on. Ooh, yeah. Um, and I think these are very cool. So a lot of people experimented with the idea, what if we don't put these signals out on the coast? What if instead we ma- we make buoys that have like a lot of noise in them to alert people that they're at least near a coast? And... Um, that People played around idea. with the idea of how can, yeah, they played around with the idea of how could we get a buoy to make noise um, or how can we use waves to make noise? So some people were like, put a fucking bell on it. Like it's a cow. And they're like, oh, that's actually a great idea. Um, uh, that's, I mean, Okay. Uh, <laughs> how do we get? How do, that, that's like pretty straightforward. Um, but apparently they put. <laughs> they just can't get away from the fucking cannonballs. Some people would put a cannonball inside the buoy so that it would like shake more violently, which I I love. <laughs> Don't forget your roots. <laughs> um, other people put in whistles on buoys so that as they would change, sort of in relative altitude, you know, bobbing up and down. Um, the the bobbing up and down along sort of like a hollow tube i do not want to say shaft but it's bobbing up and down a hollow <laughs> shaft um doing so along the waves would produce uh airflow through the buoy it's kind of like those toys that we had as a kid that would go like boop, boop, like if you like pull like one end of it oh yeah, yeah. um yeah, it would do that, but as a buoy. So it stays stationary, and the waves force the rest of the buoy to go up and down along a hollow shaft, and it creates this sort of whistling noise. Um, and a third one, which I really thought was very cool, was that around uh, this time, probably in maybe like the mid-1800s, people started to mess around with the idea of submarines and how could submarines talk to each other. And um, some some experiments, I guess, were done. I don't really know how far this went um, because I didn't really look into it very far. But they 
they would use one submarine to produce a lot of sound underwater, maybe like ringing like a bell underwater and try to develop apparatuses that were like farther away on a separate submarine still underwater to hear the bell and interpret the signal from the bell. So some people started to say, well, you know, I guess this is along the line of like, if we need some kind of fog signal, what if we just sent the signal like through, through submarines or something like that? Um, which I thought was was really like forward thinking for people back in what nineteen fourteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The submarine signal company was first started in nineteen oh one. So yeah, uh, I don't know. Just just ways of shouting underwater. I suppose I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I was just, I was honestly just surprised to see that underwater experiments were being conducted or underwater communication experiments were being conducted in, in literally the turn of the century. Um, I just, I love like old timey futurism. Like that's to me, like what this feels like. I know that's like really close to steampunk, but, uh, yeah, just, just really fascinating. But that is the, now, you know, the entire history of the foghorn. Thank, Thank you. you. I loved it. I loved the yeah. the wild ride from Canon <laughs> to, to extra large triangle. <laughs> so good. Oh my god. Yeah. It's become significantly safer. Like, you know, as if we didn't have enough to be thankful for with like vaccines and indoor plumbing. Just also remember that we're not shooting fucking cannons off of every coast. (laughs) (laughs) Every time it's foggy. It's foggy. You better bring the cannon out. (laughs) Wheel the cannon out. Wheel the cannon out. Jimmy, get the cannon. It's foggy. (laughs) Well, thanks for hanging out with us and learning all about, God, what? Uh, not incest this time. <laughs> it was tough on me. I didn't do it. <laughs> Thanks for learning all about moles and foghorns and I already problematic scientists. <laughs> yeah, asshole scientists. God, that was years ago. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for spending time with us. We love hanging out with you. It is absolutely incredible and really humbling to us to know that people give a shit. I don't know. It's really, it's really cool. Um, please follow us on Go Ask Alice Pod on Twitter. And I always forget our Instagram and TikTok. Instagram and TikTok is Go Ask Alice Podcast. There it is. It's both. It's the same on both. Yeah, same on both. Okay, you guys write that down. Yeah, write that down. Make it good. <laughs> and th- yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. And as always, we want to know where you end up on the internet. We want to know what your answer is to our question of the week. We just want to know all about you, especially you, Steve. Yes, Steve. <laughs> Steve, Steve's our favorite. We love you, Steve. <laughs> yes, we do. She's she's such a horse.